welcome back to the Lightly Literary Podcast, the only book club podcast that has a chocolate cake recipe on demand that does include a full can of Coca-Cola. We've got that memorized <laughs> step by step. Can pull that one out, Amanda, no problem at all. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What would you accent flavor-wise in your Coke cake? Coke cake. That's fun to say. I suppose cherries, right? Like cherry cola, so probably oh, cherries. Yeah. Vanilla Coke, too. I guess we're just, are we just copying what Coke has already, you know, ingeniously (laughs) invented? (laughs) They've already pioneered this. Uh, I'm pretty (laughs) sure at this point, too, this is not sponsored content, though we probably should at least put in a call, put in an email to to our dear overlords at Coke. Don't they have like a megacorp over them? Maybe. I feel like it's like Yum Foods, or is that Pepsi? I don't know. It's uh, it all tracks back to it's all General Electric anyway at the top. So. <laughs> <laughs> but it, but anyway, yeah, they've already innovated just about every flavor combination with Coke. They've even started making up non-flavor flavors this year. Have you seen this? No. Well, this is way off topic now, but you know we're just riding the wave. Uh, they have started doing flavors where the description is a concept. I have not tried any of them, but I've seen them at stores. So, like, I think it was a week or two ago, they released one that was just called Dream Flavor. Supposed to taste like dreams. What does that even mean? Yeah, and they've done a couple (laughs) like this, where it's just conceptual. Anyway, I do not have cake recipes available for dream-flavored Coke, so if you're listening for that purpose, you can just hit pause now. I'm not going to tease that out or try and hint that we do. If you have no idea why we've done a two-minute tangent about Coca-Cola cake, that is because you have found a book club episode on the novel A Good Family by A.H. Kim. We are a book club podcast. You can find us on Instagram and Facebook under the handle just at the Lightly Literary Podcast, which is all one word. So check us out there. Give us a follow, like, subscribe if possible on a platform, etc., etc. Our book club episodes are deep dive and analytical episodes. They will be filled with spoilers so today did i say part two if i haven't mentioned it it is part two not part one so we'll be discussing the second half of this novel analyzing it in detail and discussing it yeah spoiler filled everything at this point is up for discussion uh any content warnings you could think of there was there is death portrayed in the back half and then i just remembered or i think i remembered it last night but i remembered that there is uh some descriptions of like sexual assault those are the only uh, things yeah. I have. Yeah. Well, the I think the sexual assault was... Oh, uh, well, yes. Yes. Yeah, those were the only two I could think <laughs> of. As always with the content warnings, we don't know for sure what will be discussed or what we're really going to kind of fixate on or analyze. So those things could come up. We may also just brush over them and not really talk about them. But there's those uh, just at the beginning of the episode in case... You want to tap out now. Uh, and if you have not read the second half of this novel, again, A Good Family by A.H. Kim, then feel free to listen through for spoilers if that doesn't bug you. Or just hit pause now and come back. This will stay up in the feed in the old archives for as long as possible. So let's rock and roll. Anything before we start? No, I'm ready. Okay. Let's, uh, let's dive in. I, <laughs> this might be a fast one. At least I'm going to keep my thoughts brief. <laughs> I don't know if I'll have a lot to say. <laughs> uh, I always say that, and then the episodes where are more critical and in the negative sense always go longer. So I guess we'll mm-hmm. find out what happens. We're going to start with chapters 19 through 22. So we kind of chunk up the book and discuss it in chunks. So in chapters 19 through 22, we got a couple updates with Beth. Um, She is in prison still, obviously, for her white-collar drug crime. She reminisces in prison about the time she had to build... Is it Le Refuge? I I just... 
that name bugged me the whole book. It was just an example of how I just hated this book, and so just calling it that. It's just a ha- vacation house. I don't. If you name your vacation house after a proper noun, I hate you. This is what I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> you just the the kind of uh, ambiguous broad you, the the symbolic you. Um, anyway, and so she built it and got kind of a tax break out of it, and yada yada. It's vacation home for the rich people. Later, during a hair appointment in prison, she quickly hides her identity via a People magazine article from Deb. So she's still skirting around that. She does not know. She does not want people in prison to know who she is. Uh, and then switching to Hannah, we learn a lot more about her backstory, including about how she and Owen first met and dated. Owen was the college boyfriend she had. She's now 50 years old. No, doesn't, yep. doesn't she have yep. her 50th birthday in this book? Yeah. Well, she she's does. really caught up on this. She thinks about her college boyfriend a lot. I don't know what has <laughs> happened in the intervening years. There's like a she she's a character with kind of a dead history feeling where it's like I get that in her 40s and 50s she's, you know, attentive with her brother and wants to be up close with his family. Like what do you think happened to her between when she was 23 and 40? I don't <laughs> She's just dedicated to her life, like her life to her brother, I think, and just made sure that he had everything. So, yeah. As a critique of just this book, she does stand out to me because she feels like an empty vacuum of a character. But anyway, I guess it's just something I fixated on where it was like, I guess I get where she's at now, but she feels like a history-less person to me. Yeah. Like, really? Despite the fact that we get flashbacks. Yeah, and the fla- but the flashbacks go back to their childhood. And then, so again, just this fixation on her college boyfriend with nothing in the... I don't know. It's, it was odd. <laughs> it's a very odd choice. Anyway, and so she thinks about Owen, and she kind of longs for him maybe a little bit, but anyway. Um, she also, in the meantime, seems to grow quite close to Beth, who's in prison. They maintain a consistent correspondence, and it seems more active than anything Beth is keeping up with anyone else, like her husband Sam, mm-hmm. for example. So there's that. And one of Hannah's new suspicions, Karen, Hannah's, if you forgot this from part one, Hannah's trying to figure out who the whistleblower is, or who aided the whistleblower, and she suspects Karen, but it doesn't seem like a promising lead, and also Hannah has grown quite close to her nieces and takes care of them often, which I feel like we could copy-paste that final sentence into every section. The book is building up their dependency on her. Like, the whole back half of this novel is just Hannah becomes extremely close with the Sam's kids, her nieces, and they become, you know, almost dependent on her. Yeah. She's she's kind of replaced... Sorry. She's kind of replaced Beth in some ways as as the maternal figurehead there. Yeah. Yeah. And then let's talk about your quote first, because this doesn't happen to us very often. And I was even surprised that my brain checked it almost subconsciously, but you and I would have chosen the same quote. (laughs) And so I I swapped, yeah, which almost never happens. We always pick some things to analyze in each section, and you and I just pick the same thing. So why don't you take us away and give us your extremely, I'm sure, deep insights into this this impressive (laughs) writing. (laughs) This is Beth's perspective, Um, and she's uh, she's at lunch with Martin, and I think it's at the same place that Martin took um, Hannah as well. Two very different 
perspectives, mm-hmm. though. Um, the curvy waitress is wearing a clingy dress that shows off her big tits and nice ass. She greets Martin with a sexy smirk and wiggle of her hips. She reminds me a little of Karen, who was also in the service industry before she married Martin. Now that I think about it, so was his first wife. Maybe Martin has a thing for nubile, servile females. Then again, who doesn't? Um, who doesn't, indeed. <laughs> but the thing is, she doesn't. Because yeah. look at Charlotte Von Mar, like the love of her life. She is not any of those things. So wh- why is that in there? What? What? <laughs> I I don't know. <laughs> there are definitely times, it feels like, it feels like at times the kind of narrative voices in this book just black out. Like it's as if, I mean, granted this, we obviously have to put this to authorial, not intent, but authorial design and, and I guess like missteps in our, in our estimation. But there are narrative voice moments. For example, we can, we're going to spoil the back half of this book anyway. I, like, are we meant to empathize? Do you think ultimately with Beth or be kind of impressed with her? Because I found her such a shallow, kind of vapid character. But obviously, the way the book turns out, she's meant to be sort of, like, impressive in the end. I guess, but I I don't... I don't find her Yeah, like, moments like this in her voice feel, again, it's like blacking. It's like, how am I supposed to feel about this person? This is, like, the most shallow, unimpressive, rich person... The classic rise to executive fame got rich off one pretty good idea and now, you know lives the the most privileged life of it ever <laughs> and so i mean obviously now she's in prison but before that right had had such a, an advantage and so i it just feels like moments like this i don't is it meant to be humorous is it meant to kind of charm us or win us over it makes her seem like the most shallow thoughtless it's kind of asinine person like ever <laughs> And yeah. I and again, especially where the book ends up, the book ends up giving her the position of ultimate intelligence, wit, envy, or not envy, empathy. It, it's it makes her seem like the kind of like not the hero of the story, but in a sense, especially how she concludes the story with such kind of grace and empathy in in a way. It it clearly like admires this character. The it was one of my great questions in the first half was like, what is it going to end up? What is this book's position going to end up being with Beth? You know, maybe it'll be complicated. Maybe it'll be a mix. And I think it's just outright admiring her, which yeah, feels it, weird to me. <laughs> weird, like wrong. <laughs> yeah, uh, it's. I I think the, you know, one of the things that we like about literature is you know character growth. So I think that the flashbacks and everything, they're supposed to show some sort of growth for her over the years, and then in in prison especially. But I don't see the actual growth. It just goes yeah. from like juvenile, spoiled, entitled, like all these things, and then in the end, it's like, oh, she she knew all along, and she was just like, you know, tormenting. Yeah, she's doing like Hannah. an empathy experiment to see like, right. can I connect with this person, and can they can they learn to you know empathize with me? And then there's right. the other thing is yeah, you're right. Prison, the classic you know, blender for growth, you know, it chews people up and then others are transformed. It's, you know, an ultimate extreme setting for those kinds of themes or motifs to play. She feels like the same person in prison the whole time. 
She's she does. You know, smart, sexy, cool, witty, gets along well with everybody, like doesn't have any issues. I think one of the one of the parts I cackled out loud in this book was the twist, quote unquote, in the in the prison where it's revealed that like everyone knew who she was and they were just kinda of messing with her. I'm like, what a yeah. limp like it, it affected nothing. It had no impact right. on her. There was no right. conflict generated from it. There were tiny moments of mood and tension with uh, some of the other, but like ti- microscopic. And so yeah. I guess it was meant to twist against those. Anyway, we'll, we'll get there. Um, on page 179, I did pull something from the section two, but that quote, the one that you pulled, uh, <laughs> did, ha- did have me twisting and turning. Um, here's a weird section on 179. This is Hannah, and uh, she's at a conference with her coworkers. It's like a lawyer thing. She's a lawyer librarian. Anyway, she says, I can't help but eavesdrop on a person at her table, or should I say eavesdrop on my dining neighbor's texts? Then there's like 10 back and forth text exchanges, and which I could read. It's pretty uninteresting. You know, what are you doing for V-Day? Fucking nothing. Literally, me too. How long do you go without sex before you get your virginity back? LMAO, I'd say the statue. And then there's just some talk. And then it wraps that up with the Indian RBG inserts a smiley face with a stuck out tongue. And then two years seems like a reasonable statute of limitations on virginity. By that standard, my virginity has been restored since before the senior Bush administration. No pun intended. So, you know, a little... Little flash of humor. We love that. That's great. <laughs> but this is really meant to be these moments kind of flesh Hannah out as a character. And I, I guess in the end, we're supposed to, I don't know, pity her maybe a touch, uh, maybe a touch more too than we than we thought the first half set up. But there's so much going on here that I dislike. Firstly, it's absurd to think that a person could reasonably read 10 back and forth text exchanges spying on somebody's phone. How is that physically possible? I don't, it's just like, and it's such a little style twist moment because it's, you know, the text is bracketed out and it's back and forth and it's written in the, the shorthand of text messaging. I just thought it was just kind of a pathetic little attempt. I was like, this doesn't make any sense. What's going on? <laughs> Why is she, how is she reading 10 lines of text? Yeah, and I, I feel like maybe that was just another way for um, the author to include yet another format in her organization. She already has, like, I think her organization is interesting. Um, it's one of the things that, that I do like about it, but... There's some letters. But, yeah, th- there's depositions, there's letters, mm-hmm. there's two narratives full of flashbacks, and you know th- it's it's an interesting organization. It doesn't need this other thing inserted into it to make it seem, I don't know, current. I suppose. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. She she could have done that in a completely different way that would have made more sense and and well, didn't seem like just shoved in there. At least we're treated to two you know incredible jokes, which is the Indian RBG, great great lawyer humor, and <laughs> really a great observation. And then of course the Bush administration joke about her non-existent sex life. I I get that it's playing up her loneliness and her kind of isolation in this world, which you know, given how the novel ends again now that we know, it's it all makes sense thematically. It doesn't mean it's good sense or like fun yeah. or interesting sense. But it, yeah, it's like, okay, yeah, we need to set her up as as lonely as possible so that when she's given the kind of like reward in the conclusion of, of a family, then it's like, okay, yeah, I mean, I guess she's become a different person. Um, let's move to the next chunk. Yep. Uh, chapters 23 through 26. We finally find out how uh, Meatloaf Mary died. 
Hmm. Um, accidental overdose as she attempted to hide drugs in her body during a cubicle search. Um, which is not uh, what everybody had been gossiping about. Yep. They all thought that dead killed her. Right. Um, we also find out more about Karen, Martin's wife. Um, she was an excellent masseuse, Beth recommended to her co-workers at God Helsa and introduced to Martin. Beth may have had a crush on her or at least was like sexually attracted to her. Um, but now she thinks that Karen is basic. Um, mm -hmm. On Sam's birthday, Hannah goes to pick him up from work to take him out and celebrate with his daughters, but she sees him meeting with dun 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 Charlotte and receiving a bag from Charlotte. Um, he gets upset and ruins the day for his daughters when he freaks out about Hannah asking who he was meeting with. Uh, turns out Sam has been falling behind on payments on everything, and both of his homes are on the verge of foreclosure. He asks Hannah for money. She agrees, but she stipulates that he budgets himself and that he keep no secrets from her going forward. He agrees. Um, Beth reminisces about getting her promotion to VP of North American Marketing by targeting teenage girls' parents with the new slogan for Metamin, fit in or fit right in, something like that. Uh, Martin comes by to ask her for a loan, of course. Then Hannah goes to visit Beth with the girls as Sam goes off to play golf. She finds out that Charlotte has been regularly visiting Beth in prison. She's also surprised to find out that Beth and the girls have remembered her birthday and planned that delicious Coca-Cola cake and a That's present right. for her. Um, Hannah finds out that there's a case against her brother and Alex for insider trading. Yeah, more legal issues stacked on top. Oh, Sam. What a that was my hope in the first half of this book, but what a non-development. Did, did you can you parse or even in your memory without using the text? Do you think you could differentiate his different like failures in the second half cuz it it just became so kind of mushy and it all blurred together. Every scene he's drinking too much and lying in bed with money and it just it's like playing the same notes <laughs> so much in the is is his whole second half of the book I just expected I don't know, some kind of like new twists or new revelations or new aspects of his character, but it feels like it really is just playing the same things in this second half. Yeah, it's just his his inability to take action in his life and he's just he's a people pleaser. He just wants to do he wants the easiest way that also makes other people happy. Yeah, there's just a mushiness to it where it just, it just kind of yeah again clumps or mushes together. Where I'm like, yeah, it's the yep, we get it. He's got that problem. Yep, again, there's it doesn't feel like it's adding depth when it recurs when these problems recur. It's like oh yeah, yep, the same problem. Yep, same thing. Same same same. <laughs> and it's just like I couldn't again. I can't like differentiate their thematic meaning or resonance. It it just feels samey to me. Yeah, none of these characters actually really grow. I would say that the one character that shows any kind of growth is, I guess, Hannah in in her growth She's as supposed like a to. mother. Yeah, but yeah, but that's it. She's definitely even, supposed to. Yeah, and even even Hannah's growth is not. It's just not portrayed well. It's just like the. We, we get her her past and how lonely she is, and then all of a sudden she's in this mother role, but we don't get any of that, you know, development to yeah. that, so. Let's talk about yeah. Beth for a second. There's a detail we, you've got to help me unpack, 
because it's it's open to interpretation. So on two twenty one, Beth in prison has been getting these really generic meds that she hates. She's you know rich executive that she is. She only wants name brand drugs. No no trash <laughs> off brand drugs, which she hates anyway. And there's this exchange. You got him to give you the brand name, Deb says. BOP docs never do that. Told him I was having libido issues. Told him to check under the hood for proof. Is there anything you won't do to get what you want, Liz Trim, Deb asks. I swirl the Maybelline kissing potion on my lips and climb into Juanita's bunk. I lean in close next to Deb so she can smell the sticky sweetness on my lips. Can't think of anything, I whisper. Okay, so obviously with the with the lip and the whisper and whatever, as we know, this book has been building up this kind of sexual tension or taunting with her and Deb. But let's put that to the side for now. D- did she sleep with the doctor? At, like, I, we're, we are in the end meant to think that this is the super genius character. She knew everything all along. She had all the twists planned. She sacrificed. Like, I don't think there's really any way this book critiques her. There's there's actually no critiques of... Once you get to the conclusion and you look back over the book, this book holds Beth in very high esteem, I, I would say. And so, yeah. like, what happened here? <laughs> What's the... Because I think this is a pretty important moment to show. We already know some of these extremities she'll go to to like protect her family or yada yada. But this is this is unique. Like this is a level of commitment and perhaps manipulation we've not really seen from her, uh, especially since it's with a stranger to get drugs. Like, I, is that literally what happened? Is it? Do you think she just flirted with him a bit and kind of I don't know, like, yeah. I, how do you interpret this? <laughs> Well, it was her, the doctor, in order to get um, a better prescription for her uh, birth control. And I think, yeah, she slept with him. And I'm not surprised by it because we've seen instances of her using her sexual sexuality and sex to manipulate. Like, even yeah. in one of the scenes, um, she's at a party when, when she brought Sam to one of the parties for the first time. Mm-hmm. Um, and the executive is like manhandling Charlotte like cupping her butt and everything like that and she just like accepts it they both just kind of like roll with it because they're they're used to I guess in that kind of environment being sexual objects and so she uses it to her advantage yeah, this this gets tidally wrapped up for us at the end of the book when she has a memory flashback to her parents, yada yada, sex is power, cool, obviously very insightful and subtle stuff here, so thank you for that book. <laughs> but yeah, it just, it definitely felt to me, and, I, and the way you could read that, of course, with like the check under the hood phrasing, it could again just be that there, she, there was some flirting and she kind of was teasing this, this doctor or something, then again, it's there's really no, nothing stopping us from thinking that she slept with him I, again I the difference between those maybe for some people too is like well who cares if you're doing one the other you know is there really such a difference there's many things we can unpack I guess but it just I don't know again knowing the way this ends for her knowing that she's the again most intelligent clever and ultimately like again maybe empathetic person in the book I don't know. It just seemed like an extra level of commitment to manipulation. And I think her character, we already quoted before the kind of observations about the uh, sex. It's I just think she's kind of a shallow character and really uninteresting. But it was yeah. a bold moment, I thought, like narratively. Yeah. Yeah. That Anything was, uh, from this yeah. section? What do you think? Um, 
I just, I had questions again. So on page 209, she's talking about, like, working out and everything. Um, she's very, of course, focused on how she looks. Um, and she says, the, the messages, the massages tapered off when Martin and Karen got married, but the benefits of the workouts endure. Need proof? You should see my amazing upside-down heart of an ass. Again, I'm like, who is it? Who is she talking to? And this is a point that I raised in the last um, episode that we we were discussing this book. And it's just, sometimes there's references to the you. There's italicized asides. There's, I, I, I just am not sure about, like, the, the tonally. It just seems to change randomly. So sometimes, mm-hmm. and, and we see it too later on, Hannah does the same thing later where she yeah. makes a direct address to the reader. And I'm just like, but why? What is, why are you breaking your, the rest of the narrative structure, the, the rest of the way that you have been writing this, this voice? Why is it that all of a sudden now you're directly addressing us for what? I, I don't know. It just, it, Every time she did that, it just pulled me out of the the narrative, like, instantly. And I would just kind of be like, what was the point of that? Why? (laughs) Yeah. And looking back, one of the quotes I picked for our book recommendation, which we haven't recorded yet, behind the scenes sneak peek at the process. But looking (laughs) back now, Hannah's character, too, has real discordant moments. And and I guess uh, maybe the genuine or genuine, um, maybe the generous reading is that it's supposed to show growth that she's obviously no character should be or it would be interesting if there were some perfect behaving thinking person. But also the the discordant moments feel like sloppy or kind of silly even. And they're more it's more like goofy. It's like the quote you read earlier, the sexual kind of discussion and the way she objectifies that person. It's almost like cartoonish or something. It's like, yeah. well, this is not, it's, uh, yeah, and so it almost reads as kind of silly. Um, don't think that was the intention, but that's the way the, <laughs> that's the way the tone, the descriptions, the uh, kind of quality is there, anyway. Yeah. Yeah, Any I other, agree. I think cartoonish yeah. is, is actually a really good word for some of the, the stylistic choices, I suppose, that Kim uses here. Yeah, you you don't love to see it, the cartoonish description, <laughs> or hear it, I guess, <laughs> yeah. depending on who you are. Let's move on to the next section, 27 yeah. through 29. In a huge twist, big question marks around those things, because this has got to be one of the limpest twists I've ever seen in a book. Deb, <laughs> Deb reveals to Beth that she and Juanita are dating, and I guess have been, uh, who cares, really? <laughs> um, and that they know they all know who Beth is. So, like... I guess a lot of that other behavior they were showing was needling her a little. But the thing is, why? Do, I guess we can just discuss this now. Like, why does this matter? I, I think because be- the book plays it up. It's like the only time in the whole story that Beth is like tricked or surprised, other than the deposition of Lise. Which she takes really well, and, you know, she's got her her iron rod back, and she's a tough exec, whatever. Again, I think the book's very sympathetic to Beth. But, like, this is clearly a moment when she's even internally that, like, oh, my gosh, like, I didn't know this could happen. Like, but who cares? It doesn't change anything. It doesn't show or reveal anything. Like, Mm -hmm. why does this matter? Uh, I think if we take into account the the final final twist when she's like, aha, I've I've been manipulating you and and stuff all along and she's been trying to manipulate Deb as well but you know well she's Deb, been getting everything she wants 
Yeah. Like, that's the thing, is it's not... Those little moments of sexual tension between her and Deb, the, the only one I can think of that actually had maybe that sinister, tiny sinister tone mood to it was in the closet, but even that resolves itself quickly, and there's no... Deb doesn't do anything aggressive, and, and obviously, as we just showed in the previous scene... Um, Beth is really happy to flirt with Deb and kind of lead her on and whisper things in her ear and she wants her to smell her lip gloss, yada, yada, yada. So, but, and mm-hmm. so there's not really been a back and forth and if there had, or there's not been a back and forth in a more conflict based way, it seems kind of mutual and th- there's nothing that she doesn't get from it. There's nothing that is taken from her because of it. There's nothing, there's no threat to her. She has her work privileges. Juanita's genuinely a good person to her. She has a really close friend. That doesn't change. Like, nothing, cha- this doesn't change anything. <laughs> it just changes her her feeling of, of being in power, I suppose. I, does it, though? Because is the rest of the prison narrative different? <laughs> does it, like, change their dynamic? You're right, it doesn't. I like <laughs> I guess we're meant to think it could, but like I guess we're not shown that either. We don't after this moment, we're not shown a lot of like internal prison interaction and so so, so much of the book wants to wrap it up. But anyway, yeah, I just thought this was truly one of the least inspired twists, meaningful twists I'd ever seen. And and I guess it's maybe that if she, in her design of this narrative, she was thinking, okay, well, I can't have Deb, you know, assault her. So that'd be too prison cliche, right? The the big aggressive inmate who just assaults the new, like, it, yeah, okay, I would agree with that too. I probably would be like, yeah, let's not write that story. But like this alternative, like uh, this non, just don't treat it like a twist then. It just felt like such a lame thing to do and yeah. anyway i guess it was supposed to be meaningful it, it again shows that beth can be manipulated herself a little though it has zero impact on anything um mm-hmm. she also remembers charlotte again uh charlotte has to be one of the least inspired characters of this whole uninspiring book because again we are shown we are told instead of shown a very critical moment which is that they got back together uh they, they do meet up and have sex in a hotel but it's not like not that i need the sex to be described but there's no like back and forth between them their relationship is so puzzling like it's all told in summary there's no i don't feel any intimacy between them but they're i don't know they're really close so they're back together um and then they ultimately decide to be together permanently maybe get married which means beth is going to divorce sam and hands him divorce papers in hannah's chapters sam has become become a full-blown alcoholic at this point though the narrative never really calls him that it's all just Mm -hmm. treated as part of his um life trauma drama and is falling behind on other things, including paying the babysitter. It's all financial. Again, it kind of plays the same hits and taking care of his children, maintaining a job. These are all things that he's struggling with. And his lack of life insurance specifically gives us the tragic backstory about Sam and Hannah's parents, which is that they were, um, they were, killed in a car accident by a drunk driver so manslaughter and were kind of left to fend for themselves from an early age and to wrap up the kind of family drama on her end that's hannah's end the final revelation in this section is that her really expensive earrings from tiffany's from sam were actually a fake so he put them in like a fake box and gave them to her and that is a new symbolic wedge to drive between them i think we should start with the earrings another thing that i think the book treats as a key key twist like this, I don't know. I'm not sure if you read it that way, but it felt like given its timing in the narrative and its position and her reaction, this feels like one of the things the book is wants us to care about the most. For sure. I, I agree. I think that there were um, 
three major twists, which is the earrings, the fact that uh, Wanita and Deb are getting it on, and the final. Yeah, well, of course, the of final. Who done it? Yeah, the final reveal. Yeah, yeah. yeah. D- uh, so this again, I almost laughed at this revelation. Uh, let me read the paragraph where she tries stylistically the same she, same thing she did in part one, which is when she takes a moment of grandeur and wealth and makes it seem gross. Remember that dinner scene she did that, or that lunch scene? She does that again here with the memory on two sixty seven. It reads, "I close my eyes and try to blot out the memory of that night for my fortieth birthday, but I can't. I see Sam's face, ruddy from drink and the heat of the bonfire, making such a spectacle of himself as he presents the gift." me. I hear the roar of the crowd's adulation as they recognize the signature color of the gift bag and the extravagant size of the gemstones. I smell the nauseating mix of expensive cologne and even more expensive booze that envelops me as I give Sam a grateful hug. Why does Sam need to make it about himself all the time? Why couldn't he have just given me the earrings in a quiet moment, just the two of us? Blah, blah, blah. So... Yeah, I mean, given the the turn there and the nauseating, just you know, feeling and the the cologne, and it's her critique of this wealth. I I get that Hannah's compromised. That's part of the point of the back half of this book, uh, of the book itself. She's really caught up on the kind of symbolism of this and his mm-hmm. lying and everything. But also, it's if she's not going to care about material things, then she's not going to care about material things. It's kind of having it both ways, but maybe that kind of hypocrisy is the point. Do you do you read it that way, where it's kind of because at her character here, I kind of shrug. I'm like, well, why should this matter as much as you're making it? It's if you don't care about material things, then don't care, <laughs> and you right. seem to care a lot here. But then you know, obviously, it's the lying, not the materialism. Um, is there right. something else to read into this moment? No, it's, it was just yeah, this the symbolism of like this is. This is everything, like, he's actually grateful, he understands the sacrifices that she made in her life for him, and, but ultimately, no, he's, he's mm-hmm. never going to change, he's always going to be, you know, the selfish little boy who looks for others to take care of him. Right. Um, but I think it's funny, too, that he points out to her, like, I thought you said that money doesn't matter, that the material things yeah, don't matter. Yeah, he does do that. And, uh, and she's just like, she doesn't have a response because she's just like, yeah, I guess I did say that, but that's not the point. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Maybe his and, point would be, I knew in the moment it would make it more exciting. And you know, he wanted her to be excited. I, I don't know. Yeah. But it's obviously <laughs> any gift that is just a lie is not good. So yeah. I think, I think as kind of a symbolic moment, I, I, I don't know. Again, I kind of cackled at the simplicity or silliness of it, but I do think this one maybe works in a way that the prison stuff didn't. Or at least, like, mm-hmm. I get how this wraps up their character relationship. And I'm like, yeah. okay, this is a fitting enough, you know, representation, as we've said, a symbol of the kind of failure here of their relationship. Yeah. 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 Any other thoughts on the earrings? Um. Or how about on the section? What do you got? Uh, so on page 248, um, we have Beth, um, this, this whole thing, like actually earlier in the chapter, there were several, uh, slogans because she's at that, um, like the, the golden globes for marketing, I suppose, where it's all, um, women in marketing and like the slogans, um, that are targeted for women or made by women. Um, and then at the end, uh, she says, 
children are resilient. Everyone says so. After Christmas, so one day soon in the new year, I'm going to do it. I'm going to ask Sam for a divorce. And then in italics, it says, because I'm worth it. So mm-hmm. that um, Girl boss. I picked up. <laughs> yeah, but it's also the, the L'Oreal um, sure. the hair dye. Yeah, L'Oreal's um, slogan. Uh, I'm worth it. She's worth it. So I, I just thought that that was interesting. I, I, I was like, okay, that's a, that's nice because earlier there was all these slogans that were mentioned and it's nice that she uses another slogan and it kind of ties it back to earlier in the chapter. I was like, okay, I, I can appreciate that. So mm-hmm. I know we've been doing a lot of negatives, but I wanted to pull one positive there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I think if, having the callback tagline be from a proper noun brand this book loves brands it fucking loves brands which you know (laughs) fitting enough i guess for a a book about a marketing executive or something the downfall of a (laughs) drug ad marketing person but yeah to to turn one of its ending chapter you know kind of punchy taglines into a brand reference you gotta love that, I guess. <laughs> what's what's a Coke for? We'll do call back to our own starting of the episode, own beginning. What's a Coke tagline? Do they even have one? Smile is that theirs? I think it's is like it smile, smile. You have Coca Cola. I, I don't know. I feel like I remember more of their imagery than their taglines. Yeah, yeah, it's tough because you know slogans change over time, and yeah, I just and and we don't even watch ads anymore, right? There's like commercials are. I feel like I get a ton, out. but that's because I follow so many like food YouTube channels. Because like YouTube still runs ads. I don't have the no ad version anyway. Yeah, a fitting enough again something that feels like the earrings fitting, but I still shrug at it. Where I think, you know, this, sure, it, I grant that it's was thought out, but I to, to what end, I guess, thematic end, it all feels kind of shallow. Um, let's move to the next, and I guess third to last section? God, there's still yeah. more? <laughs> <laughs> okay, yeah, let, let's, let's just keep going. We're in this deep. All right. Um, 30 to 32, still reeling from the earring deception. Hannah recalls her decision to leave Harvard. To help her mother take care of a really troublesome ten-year-old Sam, he jumped off the roof. My God, um, her coworker Tracy gets her hands on the exhibits of Best Case, and there are pictures of the family that seem to have informed the ads for Metamin. Before Beth's troubles with the law, she apparently was pursuing a divorce, which was put on pause during the God Helsa stuff. She is adamant that her daughter's lives are affected only minimally by all of this. Um, Hannah is offered a job in San Francisco, but she declines and thinks back to a trip she took there before, just missing bumping into her old flame Owen, and she recommends Tracy for the job. Who gets it? What's So, uh, other than a deepening sense of obligation to the family, how else do you read this? Because I think there's a harsh reading of Hannah where this really portrays how pathetic she is in kind of she doesn't believe in herself and doesn't try and doesn't i mean the odd thing is that in the first half of the book and maybe this is by design maybe not odd that i think we're meant to view her as kind of this independent strong like she's clearly great at her job and you know she's not a lawyer but she has that level of intelligence in her scholarship yada yada but i think a lot of the back half then kind of if she's built up in the first this back half tears her down and shows that she's kind of this limp like 
just kind of floating through life not interesting not <laughs> not taking advantage of anything just kind of just kind of coasting and again i don't know i mean obviously it wants to put her into a family position at the end even though she doesn't have one yeah. of her own and so maybe this is just part of that right to like keep her near the family yeah i think it's to keep her near the family and it's also like another another hint thrown down about hannah being the you know the bad guy here mm-hmm. um in the end um and not that this is ob- not that this is bad it's like bad for right. her personal development but it's you know objectively like kind she goes to bat for this person who's helped her it, i guess that almost like nefarious reading of hannah's character or reading hannah as nefarious would be tracy was getting too close to the truth i mean right. we'll, we'll end up i'm gonna end up dumping all over the twist of this book in, in a couple minutes but <laughs> um anyway <laughs> the only thing i pulled from this section from 289 the fact i don't this just bugged me to no end i don't know why when she has a flashback to san francisco which is another way to, for them to get owen into the book the fact that she kept calling the person from the conference her conference companion she used that phrase like 30 times on three pages and I, it just drove me nuts i was like just control f edit this man this is not that hard you surely cannot use this same alliterative reference just pick a name for the character like why are you why are you doing this <laughs> it's it, it's up there with the brand stuff in this book where i'm like you don't have to name drop a brand for every noun every noun doesn't have to be a brand like (laughs) and this is obviously not a brand but it it had the same repetitive i like enter like a fugue state when i see stuff like this it just i can't get over how it annoys me and so the whole my reading is just like clouded by it where i'm like oh every other sentence conference companion why are you saying this (laughs) why are you doing this so that bugged me i think just to just to highlight the shallowness of her relationship with people just yeah. people in general yeah yeah and then anything yeah. for you from this section <clears throat> i will pull one uh that i i thought was an actual attempt at at style and mm-hmm. at callbacks um so on page two, 291 she says who doesn't like ice cream this isn't the first time that that line in particular has been used and i like that there's that repetition it's a callback to an earlier scene and i was like that's that's really nice i i like that that's and it shows actually like hannah and beth because i think one said it one time and the other said it the other time it mm-hmm. just shows how the two almost are like merging roles and and, and stuff in a way yeah yeah that's a nice reference it'll matter in a minute too when we at the conclusion too any other thoughts on this one? All right. Uh, second to last stopping point here. The final, I guess, like official chapters, 33 through 5. Despite staying mad at Sam, Hannah decides to help him throw Christmas at Le Refuge. And guess what? He's still an alcoholic dirtbag. Nothing. It's all <laughs> the same point. There were checking. There's no, like, deepening of anything. It's He's the same problems, same issues, same. There's no... I guess it's hitting different sectors of his life, but it literally it's the same character notes. So he's not anyway, at least make him get worse. You know, like, I don't, I guess the babysitter stuff was maybe meant to be that, but it shows the same fundamental things. And so it's just kind of like, I don't know why this is again, it's the same chord played. Um, 
Hannah decides to get four trees for the house, which she thinks is excessive, but also worth it. She wants to see the kind of house wrapped up in beautiful decorations and decor, and they are lit with candles. That's how their family does the Christmas lighting, which is one of the most insane things I think I've ever seen, but I think it's kind of a vintage, expensive, bougie way to do Christmas lights, I guess. And she then has a final fight with Sam about yeah materialism. She confronts him about the earrings, which, again, he kind of throws back at her. And she's like, let's go make some memories. And he's wrapping gifts. So it's not to defend him, but he is doing something for the kids, for the kids doing it poorly. You know, he's passed out drunk, but he is trying to wrap some gifts and stuff like, I don't know. Isn't that part of parenthood, right? Some parents want to go do the fun activities and then some are like, no, let's just keep things together. Though he hasn't. Again, I'm, this is a, this is like a devil's advocate defense of him but you know he's he's not doing nothing i guess is my point <laughs> he doesn't he doesn't die which he's about to he doesn't die doing absolutely nothing for the kids <laughs> so right. there's there's that um there's they regurgitate a few of their talking points uh, and then this ending of the book does too like what does it mean to be alone as a parent uh what familial obligation do we have to our siblings and to you know parents and and kids uh how do we trust and love so like it it regurgitates a lot of the same thematic issues but anyway he dies in a fire so that's he's just out <laughs> the the book yep. uh he dies from the candles on the on the trees catching a flame and burning down the house and he dies probably he was probably passed out drunk it's pretty easy inference to make um, that we then get a couple flashbacks that are pretty pretty important. I think uh, we learn about the sexual abuse and assault that Beth had to endure growing up from someone that she called Papa, but I think it was somebody from the embassy. Her parents we is revealed it's revealed that her parents were just chauffeurs and kind of helpers at the embassy, so she didn't grow up with a lot of luxury or privilege. And th- then she was yeah sexually assaulted, raped by a person at the embassy, and so that's kind of her her dynamic about sex and power kind of comes from that um and we, and we are treated to a deeply profound uh insight into this on 314 which i think i'll just read instead of making fun of it let's just let the words do it um so here's on 314 here's this revelation here's how it plays um The reality and the thing that I haven't told anyone, not even Charlotte, is this. Seeing mother's naked body, her full breasts and spread legs, was the first time I felt sexually aroused. It was the first time that I understood the connection between sex and power, and it was the first time I wanted to be in power. Yes, I wanted to be her, but I also wanted to be him. So there you go, Amanda, in all of its profundity. Did you know that sex can be powerful and can lead to power? Do you know there's a power dynamic in sex? (laughs) Yeah, this is bad. This is bad. (laughs) This is like a cop out of a and of a revelation or something. I mean, it's again, it's to look at it and say it doesn't connect is too harsh. It's not incoherent because we've seen how she throughout the book can manipulate. We literally spent ten minutes talking about different examples on this episode, but also to end it with such such a blatant summary is bad this is bad (laughs) that's Mm -hmm. my insightful depth complex profound way to put it (laughs) about as good as hers so there's that and martin again so when when beth was um on the european trip and she was sexually assaulted by that that older dude martin came to her rescue and got punched in the face broke his nose here he finds martin and the ambassador or not Martin, sorry, Beth and the ambassador in bed. Hey, Ryan and assumes him. the worst and yeah, like beats him to a 
like within an inch of his life and then so it's so funny Martin is such an interesting character he's so protective and willing to go to bat for her but then he also just uses her and lies to her and it, like she's his ATM card I, I it's it's such a weird I can't quite well, get my like yeah. get behind Martin's character. I think I part of it is that Beth is going to feel like for life that she owes him. It's kind of one of those things when somebody has a really profound impact on you like that early on. It's hard to just like cut them off. Like I get that dynamic, but I the problem of course is that this book wants to have dual narratives. Maybe this is an editor's note that I'm loath to give again, but will always do. But it's that's its own book, then. If you want to explore a sibling dynamic, then do it. It's just both of them come across as kind of shallow because they, I don't know. There's just no space to have complexity in either of these, I don't think. And, and so we're left with conclusions like this where she gives us this really bland thematic summary of a reading for Beth that was already very clear, but I guess now we yeah. get it directly. Like, <laughs> I don't, it, yeah, the book had gone to no end or to all ends to explore this idea. So to have it wrapped up like this, there's just nothing to cling on to that's interesting, but at least it's here, I, I suppose. What I was just thinking about, too, is um, Sam and Martin's characters, the, the two brothers, they're, they both rely on their sisters for financial security here at the end. And, um... What's different is Martin stands up for Beth in several instances, but we don't ever see that for Sam. Sam, yeah, he really, do, yeah, he comes across as his kind of pathetic, almost sniveling nature, jokey, sarcastic kind of guy. He is, yeah, really never given a redemptive moment. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so I, it's interesting. In the first half, I think that was what my keep it going was like his character. Because I think it, the way I phrased it was there was some st still some mystery to him. Or I feel like mm -hmm. he was underdeveloped. And so the story was going to go out of its way to like throw some curveballs with him. And as it turns out, the opposite happened. It just took that shallow first half version and just sunk him like a stone to the bottom of mm -hmm. the narrative lake. <laughs> it was just like, yep. oh, no, you, I misread or mispredicted that horrifically. He's just a shallow <laughs> guy you've always thought. <laughs> <laughs> just yep. sapping away so yeah okay uh do you want to talk about sam's death scene yeah just just really quickly just to point out like that could have been a really emotional scene but it wasn't it was the most <laughs> unemotional bland like just almost list of things that happened without any emotional exploration. Like, I understand maybe, maybe she was trying to have Hannah be in a state of shock, so there was not emotion, but like I don't know. It's just there. this book had so many missed opportunities for the author to really get into to use some interesting, like, metaphors similes, to use some figurative language to create some, like, imagery anything um but everything is just so so plot driven so it, everything makes way for the plot itself and, and well yeah so at this point we've got to do the epilogue because i do think of course this book is relying on its twist as a, a lot of mystery thrillers do that's part and parcel right. with the genre i think and with the, exactly. the tropiness so let's just do the epilogue so i can for one last time um, critique this thing <laughs> uh, but go ahead 
All right, we began the book with the final night of the Lindstrom family reunion from Hannah's perspective, and chapter 26 is from Beth's perspective. She sends Sam to seduce Eva to find out if Eva really is the one to have betrayed her. Sam doesn't get any confirmation from Eva. He suspects Martin, but Beth is adamant he would never betray her. She then remembers a trip with Lise and Hannah, and how Hannah helped Lise with her burn and was left alone with her for a while. Uh, Hannah remembers when Sam found out Beth wanted a divorce and when she began her plan to ruin Beth with the whistleblower suit. After Sam's funeral, Hannah reveals to Beth that her sister died. Yes, there was a sister. Died at the age of two from a rare disease, and she realizes that Beth knows that Hannah is the mastermind behind Lise. Beth has known all along. She asked Hannah to play detective to, quote, watch her squirm. In the process, the two have grown ever closer, more like actual sisters. In the end, Beth is planning on marrying Charlotte when she's out. Hannah quit her job and became a public librarian, which she loves, and moved out of Hoboken to live with and take care of her nieces until Beth gets out. There it is. We've got the tour. Tw- we've been twisted. We've been twice, twice, twer, twerned, turned. We've been twer, turned. I think it's really one of the worst resolutions I've ever seen. But I'll and I'll talk through why. Now, let me start with this preface. As someone who doesn't read a lot of thrillers and mystery stories, which is a huge genre of itself, it's like a big. It's a big selling people like these propulsive plot thriller narratives, yada, yada. But it's just not a genre I know a ton about. So let me ask this first or pose it. Before I use it as a critique, let me pose it first. Is it really common to have a first-person narrator um, completely withhold, like, the crux of the story until the end? I, I guess that's part of where I come from and why this annoyed me so much is because it's first-person with Hannah. Like, if it's an omniscient narrator who kind of just moves about... I mean, then the author can manipulate us however they want to. But, like, if you're going to give me a first-person character who consistently throughout the story is presented with moments that would definitely make her think about or wonder about the deposition she designed, like, she's the designer of this whole thing, you're telling me that for all the drama she's put through, all the pressure, all the internet, you're telling me not one time in prison with Beth she would have tension and would think to herself, gosh, I wonder if she knows. Like, that's just withheld from us. Like, we're given so much of her internal life, but it's withholding that one thing. And obviously the book requires that. If it it did it, the book wouldn't exist. But that's just, like, pathetic to me. Like, that's terrible. That (laughs) You can't write it in first person the whole time and expect us to think that we're given this person's internal life when the most important thing she would be thinking about is just... Because, like, surely she's thinking about that would you agree right yeah like when she's at the prison and like all the times that beth asked her to check up on the case her brain's first thought would be like oh shit like i wonder what she knows about what i have i wonder if she knows what i did like and so of course the book purposefully withholds that from us and instead writes these little scenes where Hannah's like looking into it. Obviously not that actively. Like she kind of looks right. into a couple family members. I guess let's start with those logistics or go into those. Why would she do any of that at all? She should never have done anything. She already knows the answer. She should have done zero research. She shouldn't have ever talked to Tracy about it. Not Like why? Why did she do any of that stuff? She did it, I think, to uh, the red herring. But th- right, but that's right. what I'm saying is like you can, in the first person that well okay that's not even a first person thing but like that guy that's terrible 
That's like terrible. Right? Of course, if a character gets to lie to you for a whole book in the first person, of course you're allowed to twist however you want. But like, how is that clever or good? If I'm a, if I'm, if the premise of a narrative design is I'm allowed to lie about the whole thing, and then at the end the twist is I was lying to you, then like I guess we're okay. Let's say this then: if I don't like the construction, the genre trope, again I can't even tell if that's a trope. I'm sure it is, but again the first person thing bugs me a ton. Just because of, like, if we're going to get her internal life, like, cutting half of it out just is, like, nonsensical. But okay, let's say the twist doesn't work plot-wise, or I don't like it, yada, yada. So then, are we treated to thematic richness? Do you find this an insightful book about prison or wealth or privilege or family? Like, is it good at any of those ideas? Uh, no, I would not call this an insightful book. No. Yeah. So then, but, and so that's the problem too about thrillers. It's like, well, if you if you're trying to build a Rube Goldberg machine mechanism with your plot, if that fails, then you're just looking at a pathetic scrap of junk, and you're like, well, this is a ugly scrap. <laughs> this is an ugly pile of parts and machinery. And then you're like, well, I, what beauty am I supposed to derive from this book? Um, I, I, again, that could be me reacting against genre tropes because it could just be like, well, in thrillers, you're not supposed to trust anyone or the point of views are twisted or skewed. Yeah, well, then don't put it in the first person. That's just like yeah. such a purposefully, pathetically misleading thing. Like that's That seems like a cop-out, narrative cop-out to me. Mm-hmm. At least with like the Westing game, which I taught as a teacher, that's like a third person story, omniscient. So it's yep. when you write omnisciently, of course, like the narrator can kind of move about, withhold, be itself kind of a mystery. And like that all feels fair game to me. Yeah. But the other thing, this final rant about this, I know that in these types of stories, it's become a um, a pretty common and easy critique to be like, well, don't have characters be alcoholics or have mental illness because, well, one, thrillers don't write that stuff with any sensitivity or depth. <laughs> and so it's just crux. It's plot like crux or uh, crux, crutch, I meant. It's plot crutch mm. to be like, ah, the character is a, it has dual personality disorder. Uh, the main character is an alcoholic, so they forget the critical yada yada. But like, is the alternative this? then to just literally have a totally functioning person that for any re with any reasonable expectation would be thinking about her her role in this quite a lot <laughs> like probably a good amount probably when she's at prison all the time about her guilt about it or her like how it went too far so like the the mm-hmm. the, the premise we're given then instead of having some mental reason for that or behavioral or you know disease alcoholic disease thing is just like oh we're just gonna cut it out and just be like nah it's just gonna be at the end I don't know. It. I really thought it was like awful writing, like really a terrible idea <laughs> up there with the Midnight Library in terms of just like this idea was a failure. This should not have been written. <laughs> but yeah, I don't know. Yeah, there's uh, it's not. I think there's certain mysteries that do it that way that that um, that have the first person that like you can't trust. Yeah, it's like, um, oh, they're insane, or they have a... Yeah, again, I know these are... Those those terms are not really as accepted, and those those tropes, I think, are critiqued for kind of, like, social reasons, societal reasons. Like, it's not... Right. It's not okay to just take advantage of someone's... Um, like, schizophrenia is, I guess, a common one, to be like, no, it's just gonna... Because the story will be cooler, because, like, you never know who they are. And it's like, well, maybe we should write about those things with some you know, with a touch of depth and empathy and humanity instead of just being like, isn't it crazy? They, oh, they didn't even know what was going on. But again, is this, this is the alternative then (laughs) just to be like, well, you had every reason to think you would get this info, but we just cut it out. Like 
it's you can literally feel the moments in prison where there should be a paragraph about like Oh, you know, and, and when Beth asks these questions, like, I immediately think back, I, mean, I have this guilt about this, like, and you, it's just cut out. Like, it just, mm-hmm. there's no, I don't know. It just felt, if you, the whole narrative construction is allowed to lie with no premise in the narrative as to why the character would be lying to themselves, it is in the first person, <laughs> like, then, then what are we doing? Like, what is the point of this? I think that's why it bugged me so much. At least with the Midnight Library, there's no... It's such a, maybe, again, flawed premise, but it's not misleading you. It's going to pursue its bad idea to its ends. <laughs> and it's like, mm-hmm. this was just a... This is just a, like, bad idea of a narrative. Um, let's end with, though, some thematic stuff. Was there something in the ending that you wanted to talk through? Other than the stuff I rambled about? <laughs> uh, sure, yeah. The... Um, I liked that uh, we get Beth's perspective of the opening scene. So we see everything from Hannah's perspective, which we now know is tainted um, because she is hiding information from herself, from whatever, uh, uh, (laughs) Mm -hmm. uh, from from us, the reader. Um, So I, I did like that we also saw Beth's perspective of that night and we get some... Uh, some other insights into it. So we know um, at the beginning, everybody's drunk and uh, Hannah is kind of a little judgmental of everyone. She's like, Eva is trying to seduce my brother again. And Beth is just out of it. But of course, like, I guess it's okay for Beth to be out of it or because she's, you know, it's her last night and all the yada, yada, yada. And then we get actually that uh, Beth is manipulating everyone that night as well. And she's very much in control of who's doing what. And she even is manipulating Hannah there. Um, When Hannah walks in on Beth naked, we get that scene from Hannah. And then we get the scene from Beth later where Hannah's like, wow, she's so confident. Like she just is like really proud of herself that she can stand there naked in front of me and and, like have no shame about it. She's so amazing. What a strong woman. And then Beth is like, I'm doing it because I know it's going to make her, un, uh, you know, uncomfortable. Because <laughs> I've already, like, make figured it out, I guess. Yeah, yeah. She already knows. The, the reason that she knew is because of the, the photo albums. Well, I don't know if you knew this, Amanda, but sex is power. So oh, it's just another it? it's just another d- demonstration of her power. But the media tells us otherwise, right? Like, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I feel like advertising and commercial people, marketing people are, yeah, they're firmly in the sex is power crew. I must have been misinterpreting all of media my entire life. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, so I just, but I, I did like that there was that the dual perspective of one particular scene, um, and it wasn't one right after the other. It was one at the beginning and one at the end. So I did like that structure. Yeah. 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 I think this. I just am never gonna get over the again maybe this is a trope that it's like with things in fantasy and sci-fi that i swallow and maybe this is just a trope that like thriller people who love these are just like that i'm okay with this it just felt like those two layers combined the the lie withhold part with the first person and with no justification for why a first person narrator would do this or think this like it i don't know yeah i guess the alternatives are are kind of like day class a or something but any, um, I get it. 
Yeah. Any thoughts on anything else from the ending? Um, I would just like to point out one more yeah, go for um, it. line real quick. On page 338, mm-hmm. um, the final line of that chapter is, the torrential rain comes down like ecstatic applause. And I actually liked that line because, first of all, Hey, simile! Finally, we get some. We have a literary device, yay! Mm-hmm. Um, but also, I liked it because if we think back at the beginning of the novels, she compares every. She she calls them a cast of characters. So in Hannah's mind, it's all very much a play. Um, so her using that final line there, I, I thought that was a nice touch to throw it back to that beginning as well. So at yeah. the end, I liked some of the stylistic choices that she made there, some of the structure, the organization. Um, so it was like reading it throughout the book, I was just kind of like, okay, this is really boring. This is kind of bland. Like, I understand everything is being sacrificed for the plot, but I mean, geez, like everything does it really has to be everything so then at the end when we get some of these pieces i was just like oh my gosh yay yeah (laughs) there's finally something (laughs) well and i think too thinking back on the intro hannah definitely and obviously didn't trust or like the family she was already pretty disconnected she was just there for sam so that's a critical thing too um yeah, man, I just hated this, how this wrapped up, but what can you do? I think, I guess with thrillers, it's, that is how it goes sometimes. Films, not so different. Like, sometimes with a movie, if you don't buy the kind of sensibility or the plot or whatever of the twist, it just kind of falls apart. <laughs> so, let's move to our critical assistance, our final couple segments here. Well, critical assistance will be one of the final two segments we do on our book club. This is when we go to a bit of criticism outside of ourselves to see what other people are thinking about and analyzing in the story. We both pulled articles I'll go first because mine's super short. In fact, most of it was plot summary, basically all of it, except for the ending. It is from the San Francisco Chronicle, which has a section of their website called Datebook, which I think is like their book review area. And this is by Erica Flint. This is, again, just the final paragraph. It says... Cleverly written, the novel brings the whodunit of Clue to the Thanksgiving dinner table. However, the most compelling part of a good family is how the deeper complexities of each character are revealed throughout the novel as the motivations for their actions become more clear and the surface level impressions turn out to be just that. While showing that things aren't often what they seem, a good family lays bare what we all know to be true, that no family is perfect. So, where to start... Uh, there's one kind of turn of phrase I liked in this, which is this does because of the wealth and privilege of this and the vacation heavy element of the kind of settings and stuff. The Thanksgiving little turn of phrase, I'm like, okay, yeah, it it is a thriller about these kind of waspy. I guess I don't know if they're literal if that fit that categorization, but these like privileged white people in America plus Hannah's in there. Um, yeah, like, like the Thanksgiving stuff, I was like, okay, that's kind of clever. Most of the rest of this, though, I don't agree with. Like, like we can yeah. just run through it as a list. Is it clever? Again, I just, I mean, I went on an excoriation there against the twist of this. I think it's a really pathetic twist. Like, I, and I don't need to rehash all the reasons why I think that, but it's like, if that's the definition of clever, I've got an infinite clever ideas. Because I'll just say two <laughs> things and then hide the third and lie. If for no good reason, lie. Like, it's, okay, if that's cleverness, then great. Uh, I am clever, too. Uh, the most compelling part is the deeper complexities. Uh, yikes. Which character has depth? Uh, maybe Hannah, I guess. She's pretty compromised in some ways. But, like, is there any other deep character here? No, and I, I think that what 
this person who Flint um, I guess Erica Flint her idea of like the the deeper complexity is just the fact that there's a lot of flashbacks to show previous right to show motivation but that does not yeah that but does that does not, not equate to yeah. complexity of character. Yeah, yeah enduring trauma does not make you complex. Unfortunately, yeah. it doesn't mean it doesn't mean you deserved it. Obviously, that's never true. But like that, it doesn't automatically mean you're complex <laughs> or like yeah. make for an interesting study. That's those things are not definitionally correct. Um, correct. Yes, you're right. And as a surface level impression, trying to be just that. Even that, I don't even know if that's true because my impression of Beth from beginning to end does not change. Yeah. Like I don't know, it does, the origin story is not important if the if the ending point is the same and the ending point is very static the whole time. So it's like she's a privileged, modestly clever, like I guess powerful rich person, and the book just treats her as such. And then in the end, I guess also thinks she's like pretty smart and cool, <laughs> and is like impressed <laughs> by her you know cleverness or whatever. Right. Uh, her sacrifice too, so she becomes a sacrifice character in the end. Um, no family is perfect sure uh, a conclusion bland and simplistic enough to match the quality of this book i guess is what i would say like okay <laughs> sure <laughs> uh, <Yep>. cool <laughs> it's sex is power no family is perfect G- so glad we clear that up um great i could have learned that from what what uh, like give me like a fairy tale taught to second graders like we can <laughs> we can clear that Cinderella. up real quick great yeah, <laughs> yeah. cool do you know that families can be manipulative and cruel um but yeah so anyway i it was i think the third review i read i just thought i'd pull that at, I, I don't know the weird thing is that the goodreads on this one is not that positive which i i you know do a little fist pump to be like all right goodreads we we align for once but a lot of the reviews i found were positive which I thought was odd. <laughs> but um, anyway, uh, let's go to yours. Uh, mine is from the Washington Post, and it's mm-hmm. called A.H. Kim's A Good Family. It's a domestic suspense story that will keep readers guessing. And this is by Maureen Corrigan. And I pulled just three different quotes here. Uh, Hannah and Beth take turns narrating the story, which tipsily loop-de-loops like a mosquito that has buzzed through a pitcher of frozen margaritas. Plot is paramount in A Good Family. Readers should be forewarned that Kim isn't concerned with psychological depth, literary style, or atmosphere. Instead, the fun in reading the novel derives from allowing oneself to be tirelessly sucker-punched by plot revelations chapter after chapter. So, I just wanted to point out that the first sentence was way more interesting as a sentence than the actual, like, anything in the book. Uh. Classic, yeah. Classic. That's why I, um, I always bulk. I, I get the I get the baseline or sort of reaction, the, what, what am I thinking of, like, not guttural reaction, the, the instantaneous reaction people have to a harsh critique of something, which is always, well, why don't you make something then? It's like, but sometimes criticism is better than the than the object. <laughs> like that's yeah. why I like mm-hmm. reading, you know, in in fits and starts. Like I'm not always reading criticism, but it some of the most like insightful, memorable things I've read about literature is not literature itself, but the thinking about it, the discussion, the analysis. <laughs> it's like a good yep. a good critique is its own art form. Um, yep. Then I get, yeah, why, why when things are harsh, I understand why you might immediately be like, well, you do it then. You know, you will want you write it. But it's like, that's a pathetic reactionary take. That's like an uninteresting take <laughs> to a critique. <laughs> so. Uh, yeah. And um, the 
she does say that um, at the end that it's it's not about style or atmosphere. All all true. Also, at the end though, she says that you have to be ready to be sucker punched by plot revelations chapter after chapter. I was like, I don't I don't think that that's true. I don't know I don't much think about that's right. Well, the other thing is <laughs> the only reason the punch would land is if the other things are clicking so that when the plot does something wild, you care. If you don't care about anything else, then how is it a punch? Yeah. You know? Yeah. It's like, it'd be like, yeah, it's you can only hurt me if I, if I care. <laughs> if I don't yeah. care, then like, why would the punch feel like a punch? You know? Mm-hmm. So, exactly. yeah, that's tough. <laughs> um, she goes on to say, Rare in a suspense novel, Kim often makes events turn out better than we anticipate. For instance, we might expect that Beth, upon self-surrendering at Alderson, will be walking into an orange as the new black nightmare of hazing, degradation, and overcooked vegetables. Prison, however, turns out to be pleasant. Um, and, and I thought that was an interesting take, is that things do turn out better. Everything is kind of like a positive over, I mean, aside from, like, Sam's death, but, like... Mm-hmm. Everything turns out really well for everybody in the end. Yeah. Which is kind of weird for a mystery. You you would also, of course, say the kids maybe not, but the whole point is that to show that Hannah has become a surrogate mother. So that you presumably it'll be like they'll have those awful couple months, but since she is reliable with her finances, or it even shows in the epilogue, like they they can live in a stable environment, yada yada. So yeah, you're right. It it does kind of turn out well. Yeah. Um, and then finally, you'll never guess who done it, or maybe you will, no matter. A good family is a lively suspense diversion that provides the eternally welcome assurance that nobody has it all, at least not forever. And I would just like to say, I did guess who done it. Um, yeah. I thought it was very obvious from, from I want to say, like a fourth of the way through the book, I was like, oh, it's Hannah. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> but, um, and, and and when she says no matter, I think that does matter because the whole like she, the author sacrifices so much for the plot, and 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 it does very much matter if you can figure out who done it because I think that's the whole point of the book for the author. So I don't know. I I kind of disagreed with that. So yeah. I, the eternally welcome assurance that nobody has it all, at least not forever. I just think this has got to be one of the worst. And I, and I am someone who is primed for a satire of the wealthy. <laughs> I am ready to go. <laughs> and I thought this was honestly one of the worst I've ever seen. If it is that, I don't even think it is, right? You cannot write a conclusion like that and say, this is like a critique of perfection in, in families, yada, yada. Like, it, this has got to be one of the worst critiques of the wealthy i think i've ever seen (laughs) truly pathetic stuff uh only a mind harvard and berkeley educated could come up with a satire of the wealthy this terrible (laughs) and just like uninspired i think that's my takeaway from this which is this is yeah this is an insider's critique and i know nothing about this author's condition of life other than the bio that's printed on the back and so i i just assume that you know she's hopefully living a comfortable enough life but like this is this is the calls coming from inside the house critique of the wealthy like this is truly uninspired stuff any other final thoughts on those um outside criticisms uh nope that's it 
Well, we, we forge on trying to find ones that align with our views, but I couldn't, I, I think I read three and they were all like kind of generally positive. I don't know. And again, it could be genre stuff. Maybe I'll chalk it up partially to that, that I just don't, I don't hum on the wavelength of the thriller all the time. Uh, let's end with an impossible segment, the Lightly Literary Hall of Fame. This is when we each pick some element of the book and to induct into our personal Hall of Fame. The more specific, the better. It can't. You can't fake it. Is what I'm saying, Amanda. We, we, it's got to be positive. It's a Hall of Fame. We, every book. Yeah. There's got to be something. It could be a single sentence, some thing. I will go with. I guess I'm going to kind of induct Sam in a way, because I do think if you wanted to hold up one thing in this book, I think, firstly, again, he's non-developed, really pretty poorly written. But I think if you wanted to do some rhetorical loop-de-loops, to use that phrase from before, you could read his his character as this sort of, like, pathetic mid-level wealth guy who just kind of coasts. So there, there might be something there in terms of critiquing how the wealthy use alcohol and they're all kind of substanced out of their minds and they don't engage with the real world and they're, I don't know, there, there's something there. So I think I'll, I'll kind of induct not Sam himself, but what he could be interpreted to be generously. <laughs> it's, it's a tough one, though. I was trying to think of anything here. Yeah, I, uh, I I definitely had like negative, but um, the the positive that I will induct, I think, is um, most flashbacks in a novel to slowly reveal truths and motivations. Because I did like a lot of the organization and structure, especially like for a debut novel. Like you know, she she made the the organization more complex than than I would expect. Um yeah. so I did like that and I did like the the flashbacks cuz I did enjoy getting glimpses of the past even even though she only like, you know, tells us and just the writing in general is is not great. Um but structurally I think that um it was it was well organized. Yeah, the ending just because of all the things that the ending just flops so hard for me i just can't i don't know it, it just bugged me endlessly <laughs> and i've enjoyed some thrillers that rely on these sort of you know we've withheld something twists but yeah first person to do it like that to have no reason for it it's just as wild to me so i don't know but i but i get why we'd induct that it's and you know we haven't done a lot of mysteries or thrillers it did make me think We've locked in some of our upcoming future picks, but I think I'm going to have to throw in an Agatha Christie book. She's kind of the, the queen, the ruler of the genre, you know? And so it's like, let's just throw, let's try and look up a really good one of hers, maybe un- unappreciated or underappreciated, because I would, I would like to see how it's done well. I cannot fathom that this is for thriller people. Like, this is a good one. I don't... Maybe it is, though. I don't know. (laughs) I read plenty of fantasy and sci-fi where I'm like, this is not... I would never give this book to somebody who isn't already into those things. And I I just feel like this has to be that for thrillers. There's no way this is just a baseline, like, anyone should pick this up and you like it. Whatever. Maybe that's just me again. Um, Any final thoughts on this one? Nope. I'm good. All right. Those are our final thoughts on A Good Family, uh, A Good Book, question mark. I think not, but that's fine. Uh, Again, by A.H. Kim. We appreciate you, as always, for listening through the whole episode. We have been the Lightly Literary Podcast. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook under those handles to see what we're reading and some promotions for the books. Uh, What do we got coming up, Amanda? 
All right, next we've got, we're back to, to books that are both popular and I think probably well-written. Um, so yeah. we've got <laughs> The City in the City by China Mieville. Then we have Pachinko by Min Jin Lee. And then A Visit from the Goon Squad by Jennifer Egan. Yeah, if Pachinko is not good, I'll, I mean, I don't know what we're doing. I don't mind doing these stinkers because <laughs> we, you know, we generally pick well and the whole point of our pod is to do have diverse picks anyway so it's yeah. i don't mind this but yeah some of those have to be good please <laughs> yeah please yeah yeah that I've, would... I've had um the city in the city was recommended to me by a friend and pachinko has been recommended to me by several people so great okay i assume they're great i trust <laughs> i've read uh, two of china Mieville's other novels and i i trust his voice and approach and like his interests and yada yada so i think i yeah i doubt that would be bad if, even if it's mixed it will have uh, real intensity to it, I'm sure. Uh, so, at least atmosphere. Okay, those are our upcoming picks. Again, thanks for sticking with us all the way through. Like and review on any podcast platform you listen to us on. We always appreciate that. And until next time, we'll see you between the pages. Bye.